Welcome to episode 19 of the Philosopher Science podcast, the podcast about free, libre, and open source software for science. Today, David and I are interviewing Glenn Cooper about the Linux distribution, Scientific Linux. Hi, Glenn. Thank you for being with us today. Hi, Patrick and David. Thanks for inviting me on the podcast. Could you please introduce yourself and explain what is your job as the head of the Experiment Computing Facility Department? Uh, as you said, I lead a department in the Scientific Computing Division at Fermilab, the, the Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory, uh, which is outside Chicago in the U.S. To introduce myself, I began as an astrophysicist. I uh, taught astronomy and physics at uh, several colleges and universities. Uh, my research involved computer models of big stars, much bigger than the sun. Uh, gradually, I moved from more astronomy to more computing and eventually all computing. And so now uh, my work in computing is supporting other researchers, uh, this time in high-energy particle physics, uh, which is what Fermilab does. Uh, my department here manages computers. We specify, purchase, install, maintain, monitor uh, a whole bunch of computers used by experiments at Fermilab. And, and also a chunk of computing that's used by the CMS experiment, the CERN laboratory in, in Switzerland. Besides hardware and operating systems, we're also responsible for middleware software like HD Condor batch software and uh, some related uh, tools. And we build and distribute and support scientific Linux, which is what we're talking about today. Uh, my department manages about 3,000 computers uh, for several dozen physics experiments. The computers are used to store and analyze data from the experiments. Uh, so, for example, we have uh, 160 petabytes of data on tape here at Fermilab. That used to be a really big amount. Uh, now, with all the genetics projects and others, it's a little more common, but it's still, still a lot of data. Uh, we also share computing with other labs and universities, so we can send compute jobs to, to them when we need, you know, peak cycles, and they can send jobs here if we have a, a little bit of a dip and have some spare uh, capacity. Uh, so that's a, a quick uh, summary. Of what would a normal workday look like for you with, man with the management of all those systems? A lot of what we do is, is what you'd expect, normal operations, uh, We watch monitoring uh, displays. We do troubleshooting, respond to user requests or, or incident uh, tickets. We also put a lot of effort into trying to prepare for the future. Uh, for example, we're, right now we're doing a lot of work to move toward container, software containers, Docker and, and related things, um, trying to expand the infrastructure for that, to build the containers, register them, and so forth. I uh, just get more experience with them, and then gradually uh, we're containerizing many of the services that we have here at the lab, uh, that is, converting them to run in containers just for flexibility and, and uh, standardization. Uh, we also have to keep up with trends in new hardware and software, so new processor types, new kinds of, of data storage, networking, Uh, new operating system versions, uh, you know, batch software and, and so on. So a fair bit of our time goes into setting up uh, test systems and, and trying these out and uh, getting experience with what, what's going to work and what's not going to work. Okay. 
Fermilab is generally known for the particle accelerator that was there. It is now inactive since 2011, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, what other big scientific projects are currently active at the moment? I'm, I'm glad you asked that. The, uh, you're right, the, the Tevatron, which was our largest accelerator, was turned off in 2011, and, and the title of highest energy accelerator moved to CERN, uh, to the LHC. But we do have other accelerators, and uh, they've been upgraded and specialized for other kinds of studies. So primary focus at Fermilab now is on the study of neutrinos, which uh, are these odd particles, and they're one of the few cases where the standard model of particle physics, this wonderful theoretical framework, um, has, a, has failure. So the standard model predicts that neutrinos would be massless, have zero mass, But from experiments, we know that they have mass, although they're very tiny masses, but they have non-zero mass. So there's something going on there we don't understand. That's you know great. That's what physics is for. Um, so that's what we're studying. Uh, the, the accelerator complex we have has been tuned to produce beams of neutrinos. Um, we actually just started a, a major accelerator upgrade to, to uh, build a essentially a new accelerator um, to provide a, a big, intense beam of neutrinos for our new flagship experiment, DOOM, the Deep Underground Neutrino Experiment, uh, which will send neutrinos from Fermilab to detectors a kilometer and a half underground in South Dakota, 1,300 kilometers uh, from here. We do other things, too, besides the focus on neutrinos. We have experiments exploring some other possible gaps Like there are two experiments studying muons, another, another particle. Uh, we have searches for dark matter, so kind of cosmology, astronomy related. We're the host for the Dark Energy Survey, which is, again, a cosmology uh, observational experiment. So we're, we're trying to have a diverse range of experiments, but with our, our sort of primary focus now on, on neutrinos and trying to understand how they work. Okay, let us switch more to the topic of scientific Linux. What would be your 30 seconds elevator pitch for scientific Linux? The purpose of scientific Linux is to provide a robust, stable platform for scientific computing, and of course, specifically for high energy physics, uh, data taking and analysis. Because physics experiments tend to be big, they run for years or decades We need what we call an enterprise operating system, one that doesn't change quickly. We still have to allow for security patches, for you know, critical bug fixes, uh, but otherwise we want a computing environment that remains stable so that experiments don't have to keep revalidating their, their uh, analysis results. So that's really the goal of Scientific Linux is to provide a, a common platform that we and other lab, other physics labs can use, and one that uh, provides this stable, reliable platform that the physicists can run custom physics software on. Okay. Did these goals change along the lifetime of Scientific Linux, or were they like initially set and they stayed the same for the, for the lifetime of the project? I think that's... It, it, in essence, the, those fundamental goals are still the same. That's still, um, physicists still want stability. They want reliability. 
Recently, we've heard more complaints about the tension between stability and current software. So, of course, by its nature, an enterprise system that doesn't change often won't have recent versions of, you know, uh, GCC and Git and and R and, and whatever. That seems to be, especially with the importance of machine learning and uh, other tools that we're importing from industry, it seems to be more important for people to have very recent versions. So that's something we've been trying to deal with. I, I think the answer, or at least a big piece of the answer, is going to be containers so that maybe the underlying operating system can still be reasonably fixed, um, but people will still have the tools they need uh, by way of of software containers. So in in, in that sense, the goals have changed, but the the, the sort of basic need for something to run their software on is is still the same. Yeah, that is a trend that we see even uh, in um, Red Hat Enterprise Linux 8. They're running more and more toward containerization of... uh, applications and uh, less and less on bare metal uh, application. Yeah. Well, and even their uh, their modularity system tool is, I think, is intended to try to let people, you know, upgrade just a few packages that they really need while still keeping everything else the same. So, yes, both of those, I, I agree. Mm-hmm. Initially, Scientific Linux was published about 15 years ago. What were the motives to create and maintain a complete new Linux Linux distribution instead of using an existing one and adding package or working with uh, an existing um, distribution? Well, first, I have to say that 15 years ago was a long time, and it's a little risky to try and remember what all the motives were. Uh, I actually wasn't directly involved, although I I was here at the lab. But in talking to people and and, and sort of... uh, you know, what I know about it, I think we had several thoughts in mind. One is that, as I mentioned, we, we thought that everyone, you know, different experiments at the Fermi Lab and also other labs that do similar things like CERN and DAISY in Germany and Brookhaven in the U.S., which does somewhat similar and, and so forth, um, would benefit from sharing a, a, a standard platform, standard operating system. Um, and, and if we built it ourselves, then we could make sure that it did what we wanted to do, that it included the pieces that we want, didn't include pieces we don't want, which I guess is another way of saying we wanted some level of control. Uh, if you just say, hey, everybody, go use Slackware, that saves time. But if Slackware decides next year to do something we don't like, then uh, that's not up to us. And so we wanted to be able to add packages if we needed to, to do configuration differently if we needed to. I think it's turned out that that's not terribly important. We haven't had to do that very often, but uh, uh, you know, it wasn't clear at the time. 15 years ago, there were a lot of Linux distributions. Uh, it was not completely clear which ones would you know, be widely adopted and which ones would not. Again, uh, we didn't want to... Uh, you know, throw all our eggs in one basket if, if that basket might not even be there in a few years. Uh, and I'll, I'll even mention a, a kind of, I'm not sure this was really an initial motive, but uh, a sort of side benefit is that when we build a distribution, it's kind of a natural way to learn more about it, to get expertise in 
what's in the distribution, what the possible dependency problems might be. So along with just packaging Scientific Linux, and another piece of our role at Fermilab is to be sort of high-level Linux support when people have a, a kernel problem or want to do performance tuning, things like that. Um, we're the people that, that they call on. There are other ways to get expertise, of course, but, but uh, forcing everything to build and, and seeing all the relationships is, is one way to, to add to that. Yeah. And actually, 15 years ago was a totally different landscape for Linux distributions. Even the city of Munich at that time decided to make Limux to, to use in their infrastructure. That They've since changed that, but they said at some point that making their own distribution was a mistake because they didn't do it well. But uh, it's yeah, the, the decision process nowadays is totally different than what it was 15 years ago, for sure. Yeah, I think that's, that's fair. We've, I mean, what has kind of saved us is that we don't make a lot of changes. <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're sort of sticking with the standard environment, so we look very much like Red Hat like Enterprise Linux or, or CentOS. We, we can talk about that more, but I, I think it sounds like Munich kind of found that out the hard way. Yeah, unfortunately. Talking about the change you make, what makes Scientific Linux totally different from other Linux distributions? Yeah, I, I think I'd, I'd have to say first, I'd have to concede that it's not totally different. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's, it's certainly similar to other distributions derived from Red Hat Enterprise Linux. So CentOS is the big one. Uh, Springdale Linux is another built by folks at uh, Princeton. There may, may even be others. We have some local customizations, uh, partly for security. Fermilab uses Kerberos uh, authentication, so we have local Kerberos uh, configuration, and, you know, SSH uh, restrictions, things like that. There's some local informational Department of Energy requirements uh, and, and things like that. But they're, they're fairly limited. Um, we had a couple of packages that people request. A couple of other differences. We support the YUM security plugin, um, which I think Red Hat does not exactly, or at least not in the same way. So that means that, in principle, you can install version 6.7 uh, and then only apply security patches, but not other patches. So, again, if you're trying to be as stable as you can. Now, again... You know, after a few years of doing this, every security patch also brings in other packages that are dependencies, and there's a lot of security updates. So realistically, after a few years, you're not really running something that looks like 6.7. You're really running a few packages from 6.7 and some others from, you know, 6.8 and 6.9. But, you know, for, for some of our users, that's still kind of a level of reassurance that, that they like. We also, Scientific Linux was originally built, and we've maintained this, to make it easier to do site customization. So from, from the start, there, was, there were variants. There was Scientific Linux Fermi for Fermilab. There was Scientific Linux CERN for, for the CERN lab. I think there was one for, for DAISY uh, and maybe others. I'm not sure. Again, I'm not sure that's really taken off outside our, our few labs, but, but the capabilities there. Um, but if, if, if you logged into a scientific Linux system and you were, a, a, you know, you, your own home environment was RHEL or CentOS, you, you'd feel very familiar. It would look very, very similar. 
Okay, so it's more like little details that were changed, not vast change. On exactly, yeah, that's right. Okay, why was it decided to use Red Hat Enterprise Linux as the base for Scientific Linux? Good question. Um, in the '90s, when we started looking at Linux, we, at the time we were using commercial Unix variants. So we had SGI Irix and um, Sun Solaris and IBM AIX and, and whatever Digital's Unix was called then, OSF or Digital Unix or something, and maybe even others. We started looking at Linux. You know, that was even more chaotic than in 2004 when we started Scientific Linux. Red Hat was, already, was not making enterprise Linux, but was publishing a Red Hat Linux. They used Kickstart and trying to remember, there's another tool. Sorry, I can't remember, but another tool that we found very useful because we installed, you know, 100 machines at a time. So rather than put in a CD or two or three CDs or 30 floppies or whatever we had done, we could have Kickstart on one server and, and network installs. Um, so that was that was a big advantage. And it, it turned out that using Red Hat Linux worked well. Um, it had the the distribution had the software tools that we needed to build physics software. So, so I think we, we went with that. There was actually something called Fermi Linux, again, before Scientific Linux, uh, that was based on these, these Red Hat releases. Uh, and then when Red Hat Enterprise Linux came out in 2003, I think, that was about when we started talking to CERN about a common distribution, and we looked sort of naturally at Red Hat's new product and found that that fit well. They, they released all the sources, of course, they're required to, but also the, the spec files for building the source, which was very nice and, and helped a lot. Um, so that, that's that's where we, you know, it seemed to work, that fit people's needs. CERN and Fermilab both agreed, and, and here we are. Okay. So the deployment targets for scientific Linux are high-performance computing clusters, servers, and desktop computers. Are there different branches or targets or images available for all these applications, or does one have to install the full HPC environment on his workstation? I think the answer to that is uh, no and no, or sorry, <laughs> in some order. Um, so actually, there are people at Company Lab that do, you know, pure high-performance computing, massively parallel computations uh, in like uh, particle physics theory and, and other things. Um, but actually, the, the bulk of our computing load is what we call high-throughput computing, which means lots and lots of jobs, but each job has no need to talk to the other jobs. So if you think about a physics detector where we're colliding particles or sending particles through Every time something happens, that's an event. We need to do a bunch of computing to figure out what happened in that event. Well, there are millions of events, but they, they don't affect each other. And so we can have a separate job to analyze each event. Um, what that means is we don't need the you know, very fast interconnect uh, hardware uh, to do you know, time step uh, computing or, or other or, you know, fine mesh grid high-performance computing. Um, and instead, what we need is just a lot of cores and a lot of memory, a lot of total memory and, and so forth. So we do that. We do high-performance computing. We, there are a few other needs. Having said that, 
we don't try to have a separate branch for each of those. There's only one branch of scientific Linux, but there are tools for installing, you know, packages, dependencies for particular things. If it's a workstation environment, say in a control room where people have six or eight monitors from one machine, we'll install a lot more windowing and X kinds of software. If it is HPC, our HPC group actually uses scientific Linux. They just take the base scientific Linux and add a few uh, MPI and other uh, packages. So I claim it's pretty easy to get the particular environment you want starting from our, our single single branch uh, of scientific Linux. Okay. okay. So recently we had an interview with Carl W. Schulz from the Open HPC project which aggregates a number of common ingredients required to deploy and manage high-performance computing Linux clusters. The Scientific Linux also integrates tools to ease maintenance and deployment of HPC systems? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. We've actually just been looking at, at OpenHPC specifically. Our, our HPC people asked about it. They are, in fact, using OpenHPC, uh, but not directly from Scientific Linux. They're installing it from the Apple repository, I think, uh, and that works fine. I think if we were going to continue with scientific Linux development, that would be a natural place to, to look to include that uh, in the distribution and, and any related tools and, and dependencies. We may ask to include that if we if we do some sort of scientific group with, with CentOS, we may do that. So I, I think it's, it's a good question. It hasn't I haven't really been aware of it until recently, and so we haven't thought about it as part of Scientific Linux until really the last oh, couple of months. Okay, sounds good. Do you know the ROCKS cluster distribution? What would be the difference or similarities between Scientific Linux and the ROCKS cluster distribution? Yeah, uh, people at Fermilab have used ROCKS for, for our clusters, uh, not for a while. It, it was wonderful. It installs really quickly is BitTorrent or some version of BitTorrent under the covers uh, or locally BitTorrent. But it, it's very hard or it was very hard to get our security requirements into it. Didn't understand Kerberos. Uh, we're required to use Kerberos. Uh, and it was just a real pain. Every time a new version of Rocks would come out, we'd have to go back and do a lot of custom patching. And uh, we finally uh, just went to other tools. My I, I personally haven't used it, but as I understand it, it, it at least by default, it installs uh, CentOS. As I mentioned, CentOS is pretty similar to Scientific Linux. So I think if you looked at a cluster installed using Rocks, it would look pretty similar. The biggest difference I know about, at least again, as I understand it, is that Rocks uses a, like a custom version of, of the Anaconda installer while Scientific Linux uses essentially the stock Anaconda. We have an extension or two, but, but essentially we're just boring old Anaconda. So the installation process is different, but I think the result is actually pretty similar. Okay. Scientific Linux is available for the x86 and the 64-bit architecture. Uh, another important architecture for HPC is IBM Powers architecture. Uh, is there support for alternative architecture? architecture such as uh, IBM Power and eventually RISC-V? 
We don't have support for alternate architectures. The short answer to why don't we is just the usual one. We have limited people, limited time. Until recently, people here haven't really been. We've looked at ARM several times. You know, every couple of years, it looks like ARM is going to be the server architecture in another year, and then nothing really happens. <laughs> so we've experimented, but never done the work to really integrate it in. Very recently, Power, PowerPC, and especially Power 9, has become a lot more interesting, specifically because several of the super the Department of Energy supercomputer sites use Power 9 processors, and DOE is moving towards uh, uh, giving people allocations on these supercomputers rather than giving us a lot of money to buy, you know, commodity computers. Um, so people want to get experience with Power 9 and, and be able to run Power 9. Uh, again, I think if we were going to keep developing scientific Linux, that would be a natural play direction to go. Uh, as it is, we're interested, but not not doing anything at the moment. Yeah, yeah, that will follow it with that because we recently learned in uh, April 2019, a few months ago, that uh, Scientific Linux 7 will be the last version of that distribution, and that Fermilab will eventually um, migrate to CentOS for its uh, internal deployment for the version 8. Which factor contributed to the decision to end the project? Uh, and can you elaborate on this decision? Yeah, several factors. Um, one is that, that is, as we've kind of mentioned before, uh, CentOS and, and other distributions, but specifically CentOS, have, have kind of converged on the goals that we had for scientific Linux. So um, it's become widely adopted. It's, you know, Red Hat has incorporated CentOS, so the support is fairly uh, fairly clear. You know, so we're pretty confident about the future of CentOS. The biggest factor is the, the Dune experiment. Um, Dune is a big multinational experiment. It has a thousand scientists working on it already from, I've forgotten, 50 or so different institutions. Many of those people have never heard of scientific Linux They've all heard of CentOS, and though we can explain that Scientific Linux is very similar and so on, it's, it's, uh, it saves a lot of time. It provides clarity to just tell everyone, hey, Dune is using CentOS, Fermilab is using CentOS, um, you know, it's all fine. So we decided to, uh, we talked to certain folks and, and decided everybody's going to just use something called CentOS. And, you know, maybe slight variations, maybe there's a, a CentOS Fermi and a CentOS CERN and, and so forth. But so, so some of that's just kind of a naming feature. It's just so that new people joining the experiment will know what we're doing, just, just to make everybody comfortable and, and uh, get some clarity. Um, and I, I would say, you know, we think of this in, in some ways as a success of scientific clinics. It's uh, over the 15-year lifetime. Many experiments have used it. Physicists have gotten accustomed to it. They've gotten accustomed to this Red Hat-based environment. Um, so, you know, whether we call it CentOS or, or, or Scientific Linux or, or whatever, people know what we're talking about. They know how to use it. Uh, they know how to write code for it. And so I think, you know, we're, we're just at the point where the original need isn't as strong and 
the sort of newer requirements for Dune and, and this era uh, are, are better served by kind of joining CERN and joining CentOS and, and scientific Linux can, can go into well-deserved retirement in a few years. Okay, so this feel like a natural transition to to finish the project. Yeah, I think so. CERN in 2014, they migrated to CentOS. This decision, like five years ago, had any impact or it probably accelerated the, the, the decision or gave you uh, a reason to look more at the migration at that time? Yeah, I think that's right. So just, just to kind of remind people, um, right at the end of 2013 and the beginning of 2014, Two things happened. Red Hat released version 7 of Red Hat Enterprise of RHEL, Red Hat Enterprise Linux, and Red Hat uh, announced a I forgot what they call it. Joined, they announced they were joining forces with CentOS. And they hired the, the core CentOS people and so on. So it's clear we had to make some decisions. We at Fermilab talked to our counterparts at CERN a number of times, talked to people at, at CentOS. There was a fair amount of uncertainty about exactly how this is all going to work, uh, what was going to happen. The CERN folks decided to make the leap and uh, just adopt CentOS. We were a little more cautious. We said, well, building scientific Linux is mostly automated. It's not a lot of effort. We can buy ourselves some, you know, some uh, security. So we decided to continue with scientific Linux uh, for version 7 and uh, sort of see how things develop. Um, so, okay, so now it's five years later. Uh, it seems like things have worked fine. Uh, CERN's still there. So, it, and as I mentioned, uh, with, with the advent of Dune, we, we really need a common uh, platform. Uh, so we decided uh, for version 8, as, as you said, to, to move over. Um, but, yeah, I, I agree that uh, the CERN experience has certainly been a factor for us. Is there any reason why you choose to support CentOS instead of some newer or more updated distributions like Ubuntu, Debian, or Fedora? Um, well, I think as, as so, one big reason uh, is just familiarity. You know, CentOS looks like Scientific Linux. Um, making the transition for everybody here and, and all the the people writing physics software and, and so on will just be a, a much easier much easier change. I would also say that it, at least for distributions like Fedora that are designed to be almost a test environment, you know, to have the latest version of almost everything, I think that's still, I think most physicists and most people here would, would still agree that's not really what we want. Even though the physicists would like their own specific package that they're using to be more up-to-date. Uh, they don't want everything under them changing all the time. And so an, an enterprise distribution like RHEL or Enterprise or, you know, SUSE Enterprise or, or something like that, I think would we would still want to choose something like that. Okay. What will be the way forward for users of Scientific Linux who will need to upgrade? What is the upgrade path? Good question. So... First, I should emphasize we're committed to supporting Scientific Linux 6 and 7 uh, until the end of their announced lifetimes in 2020 and 2024. Uh, so Scientific Linux users have some time. There's no, you know, they shouldn't panic. 
uh, there's plenty of time to think about it. Eventually, you know, by 2024, they'll need to uh, move to something else, either to CentOS like we're doing or to other distributions, uh, whatever fits fits their needs. Um, I think if they choose CentOS or something, you know, another Red Hat derivative, that should be relatively simple. Of course, it depends on exactly how you're using scientific Linux now. I, I would add that anytime you're changing a major version, you, you know, just from 7 to 8, whether it's from scientific Linux to CentOS or from CentOS to CentOS, um, we at least don't recommend doing this as an upgrade, that is leaving everything as it is and then installing on top of it. We always recommend just making a new clean install uh, for any major upgrade. So, um, again, you go to seven, from 7 to 8, it's a fairly big change anyway. Going to CentOS, I think, will, find, will, will not be a much bigger change. I would also comment that from 7 to 8 of Red Hat Linux is a pretty big change. There's a lot of big differences. Uh, so no matter which distribution you're choosing, you're, you're going to want to read release notes and watch YouTube videos and uh, learn learn about the, all the new features. Okay. Yeah, that's a really good idea. CentOS 8 is going to be a big change. In CentOS, there are groups called uh, Special Interest Group or SIG, who support package for specific applications that are like uh, desktop SIG uh, storage, uh, like mini SIGs. Do you think it would be applicable for uh, the scientific Linux community or just scientists to gather and form an SIG for scientific computing applications? Yes, in principle. We, we, we're discussing this now with CentOS people and, and with people at CERN and other places. It's not quite clear yet whether that's the best way to go. You know, as I mentioned before, we're actually not adding that much to the base product now and You know, if, if that doesn't change, there's probably no need for a, a separate uh, interest group. Uh, on the other hand, it might uh, give us uh, an easier way to, to make bigger changes, to add more, to, to, uh, to experiment more. Um, so we're talking about it. Uh, I'm not sure yet, but uh, it's certainly something that was interesting. Yeah, something to look for. How do you feel about stopping the project after 15 years? We have mixed emotions. It's, it, Scientific Linux has, has served us well. It served the lab well, the community well for a long time. Uh, we're proud of the contributions that we've made. We've enjoyed working with people here and people at other labs who've helped with, with Scientific Linux. So, we, you know, it's sad. We're sad to see the end. On the other hand, everything has an end. Uh, and ultimately, Fermilab's mission is not to develop a, you know, a, a Linux distribution. It's to do research, uh, to learn about the, the universe, about matter. For a while, we, we felt that Scientific Linux was a good way to contribute to that. We think now that joining CentOS and CentOS community uh, will be the best way uh, in the future. And uh, we're looking forward, you know, it, we, we're also eager. We're looking forward to new collaborators and, and also some of the same collaborators and in, in new directions yeah the, the tool it, you developed the tool it served it but its purpose now you need to move away to a newer tool to something something that will serve you in the future to serve the goal of science exactly yeah yeah that's a good point of view now we would like to switch to a slightly lighter topic 
What is your vision about FLOSS and its importance for the openness of science? I think open source software has become essential, central to every science I know about, certainly high energy physics. It's really useful to be able to write our own software, but then integrate it seamlessly into the base operating system, the, the, all the other software we use. Physics experiments use a lot of custom code that's written by scientists or more often by low-paid grad students. Uh, again, you know, having tools like languages like Python and, and uh, you know, make files and, and just being able to write our own software but match it to existing packages is just really uh, useful to the point of being critical to making the experiments run and collect the data and analyze the data. Another benefit is that when these low-paid grad students have developed a, a package that works, they can share it with other experiments at other labs that are doing similar kinds of research um, without worrying about licensing and, and uh, you know, other restrictions. Um, so that's great. We, we have... Uh, standard packages for everybody who uses, you know, liquid argon detectors or, you know, time resolution chambers, things like that. So that's, that's another big benefit. And I really should mention that being free as in beer is, is certainly helpful for always tight uh, research budgets. Yeah, no, no need to deal with the license fees to install on, okay, I need that mini license to install in this cluster or... Yeah, you're right. Not only does it save money, but it saves a lot of time keeping track of all the licenses and making sure the license servers work and that kind of thing. Okay, from the other side, do you think that using FLOSS can have negative impacts on science? Sure. Uh, you always have to be careful, uh, you know, think carefully about choosing any kind of software. We do have cases where there's a commercial package or a commercial software that just works better, especially for special devices, special data collection uh, things. There might be a commercial thing that goes with it. Rather than try to completely reinvent everything, those are cases where we will you know, buy the, the, the closed source uh, solution and you know, deal with the licenses. We also have to be careful because the open source community is so vibrant. There's so many open source uh, projects and packages. Uh, we have to be careful not to have people just completely get scattered. Uh, we have to be, sort of have uh, discipline and agree on a few common choices like Scientific Linux so that we, we, we can concentrate our resources and, and you know, stick with what we're doing. Uh, so, that, you know, one of the strengths of Floss software is, is the, the diversity, the variety. But if you're not careful, that can also be a weakness. Yeah, that's something people will always like. The, 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 the lack of standards, the lack of um, default choice, default options. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a mixed bag. And you have to be aware of what you're doing and how you're, how you're choosing. But it, it brings different avenues out of problems. Like if you only explore a single option and that option happens to be a dead end, then you're stuck there. But if you have a branch of different applications, one of them might be the solution. Absolutely. And that, that's, that's certainly a benefit for us like everyone else. Is as long as we're not involved in all the projects and we can just watch, 
then sure, it's, it's great that we can have, you know, four different alternatives for the same goal and one of them turns out to work better and we can adopt that one. So that's a, that's a, a real benefit. Yeah. We are almost done with the interview and we will proceed with some of our classic quick questions that we ask all of our interviewees. In recent years, what do you think was the most notable scientific discovery? Well, there, there are lots of excellent possible choices. Uh, as an astronomer, I'm, I'm going to say the discovery of gravitational radiation by the, the LIGO experiment in 2016. That's been predicted by general relativity for over 100 years. Very difficult to observe, obviously. Uh, the engineering in the LIGO experiment is just just awe-inspiring, but it's it's just really momentous uh, from the viewpoint of, of an astronomer. Uh, for most of the history of astronomy, you could observe electromagnetic radiation, light, radio, you know, more recently radio, gamma rays. There's a little bit where you can observe actual materials like moon rocks or cosmic rays, and that was it. And now there's a third completely different uh, channel for getting information about the universe, and that's gravitational radiation. So I think as LIGO and the Virgo Observatory in Europe and others come online and improve, um, that's going to be just, just really uh, groundbreaking for, for astronomy and for our understanding. So that's amazing stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on in astronomy. Like I've recently learned about the SOFIA airplane, Stratospheric Observatory yeah. for Far Infrared um, Astronomy, uh, which is quite uh, impressive, <laughs> the, the plane itself and uh, what it can do. Yeah, it's a, a big a 747 with a big hole in the side just point a telescope out of. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, exactly. 2.7 meter telescope out of the side of a 747. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's great. It's it's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, another question that we ask everyone: uh, What is your favorite text processing tool? Well, I try never to get involved in religious debates. Uh, <laughs> I actually probably the most common thing that I use is plain text. Uh, you know, email and, and quick uh, summaries and so on. And and I use I use Vi or Vim. I'm I'm a, from the old school. Other there, you know, zillions of other tools, uh, commercial and and open source. I use many of them for different purposes. Hard to pick a favorite. I, I, I love them all, just like my children. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> It avoids all the Emacs versus Vimoire as well. <laughs> I'm staying out of it. Good, good. That that's uh, that's wise. <laughs> Um, that is all the questions we had for today thank you very much Glenn uh, is there anything we forgot to ask you about that you would like to share with us I'll, I'll just uh, invite everyone to, if you're interested you can learn more about Fermilab at fnal.gov uh, and more about Scientific Linux at scientificlinux.org uh, so uh, come see and, and uh, lots of uh, neat uh, photos and comments and other things Thanks for inviting me on today. This will be all for today's episode of the Philosopher Science Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the interview. You can reach me on Twitter at DLPK. And you can reach me at underscore DBRAS or both of us at Philosopher Science. 
Also, we are on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and Spotify. You can help us by recommending our show to your friends and colleagues. Our website is on a new location. We moved it to flossforscience.com, where you can find all of our contact informations and a link to our GitHub page, where you can submit subject ideas for future episodes. You can also listen to our episodes or find the RSS feed to get all of our interviews delivered directly to your favorite podcast player. Our current schedule is to release an episode on the first Wednesday of every month. In our next episode, we're interviewing Arfan Smith, Editor-in-Chief for the Journal of Open Source Software. We hope you enjoyed the show and that we will see you all in your next episode. Bye. Bye.